Hey friends, welcome back to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. So one topic that's gaining a lot of ground in homestead and whole food circles right now is the topic of ancient or heritage grains. And you've heard me talk about them here and there over the years. You know, I use einkorn at times, uh, but I was recently very, very pleasantly surprised to receive a box of ancient grains that were grown in, believe it or not, Wyoming. And I was intrigued. I've been playing with not only the einkorn, but also these other grains, some of them I never heard of before. And so honestly, selfishly, I wanted to have the two women behind these Wyoming grains on with me today and kind of get the scoop on everything you need to know about using these grains and wheat in your kitchen. So welcome. Today, I have Caitlin Youngquist and Sarah Wood here on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm still... I'm excited. So I think this is the first time I've had two guests at the same time. So this is uh, groundbreaking today in more than one way. But can you give the listeners a little bit of background on what you both do and how you got into this topic before we get started? Sure, I can start. I'm, I'm Caitlin Youngquist. I um, work with the University of Wyoming Extension. I'm an agriculture educator. And um, I came. I started the project, Wyoming First Grains Project several years ago, and we've received a little bit of grant funding, particularly focused on learning how to grow these grains in Wyoming and then to helping develop markets. And the goal was really to try and provide some alternatives for farmers in Wyoming, um, some crops that were food crops and potentially would thrive with lower inputs, less water and less fertilizer and maybe to replace some of the acres in the state that grow malt barley. We grow a lot of malt barley for Molson Coors and for um, Budweiser. And so being able to, to provide some alternatives for farmers in Wyoming. Um, I was also raised a little more non-traditionally. We ate a lot of what um, maybe at the time was considered some of the stranger foods or whole grains and whole foods. And we had some food allergies growing up. So we ate things like spelt and millet and einkorn and different things growing up. And I didn't really think that much of it until as I got to be an adult and realized that was a really unique way to be raised. Um, and so when I was doing some looking at some alternative grains or different crops, I got to thinking back to some of these different heritage grains, things like spelt and einkorn and emmer, and did a little bit of looking and some research and found some seed sources um, and just, like I said, started working with a few different farmers, doing some experimenting, um, did get a little bit of research funding, and then learning myself how to bake and use some of these grains has been a really fun project. And that's how I got to connect with Sarah um, and with her wonderful business that she has. And so that's been really fun. She has the milling capacity and um, and does a lot of retail with these grains. And so it's been very fun to connect on the with the farmers on the growing side, and then with her with the milling and the um, and the retail side. So that's kind of how we arrived at this project. I guess that's the biggest overview. Awesome. So um, yeah, I'm. Let's see, I'm fourth generation on our farm up here. My family originally settled up here in the early 1900s. So we've grown about every commodity crop that you can possibly think of here. Um, I connected with Caitlin, was it two, three years ago? Um, because I started raising some of these grains and kind of panicked because they um, don't grow <clears throat> like our hybrid plants that we um currently grow like the malt barleys um the einkorn is is very difficult <clears throat> I called I call Caitlin a lot panicking um because it just did not seem like it was growing um <clears throat> I kind of fell into this rabbit hole oh gosh probably five six years ago about um these different older grains I had always 
um, enjoyed them. But also my biggest concern was the people that were gluten sensitive. So there seems to be a huge influx of people that are not able to eat the standard meat that we currently have and are available in our country. And just started going down um, the rabbit hole of why. And a lot of it was because we've lost a lot of the biodiversity in our grains that we have now. Um, some of it's farming practices, but also a lot of it is processing. Um, a lot of the processing is done with steel burr mills. I believe there's only five major mills in the US now. Almost every small homesteading town used to have their own mill. And so um, lost a lot of that with our, we have a stone mill. So everything is slow stone milled. It takes a lot longer, but you get a higher quality product by doing that. And so Caitlin and I have worked a lot with um, education because like you had talked about, it's, they're different. Um, a lot of them require a little higher hydration, but a lot of them you can swap. Um, some of my different heritage greens, you can swap one for one with um, the red spring flower that you get from the um, grocery store. So we've just kind of cross paths and have really worked well together in educating the public and why they want to have these grains in their lives daily. Yes, I think education really is key for sure because there is just well half you know more than half the people don't even know they exist and then when they do become aware like so me and my audience and myself included you know you get our we get our first bag of these flowers and it's it's not the same like <laughs> as as you know so <laughs> there's that learning curve but it's not a bad thing at all and there's I think so much option out there and we just broaden our horizons a little bit. Um, I definitely wanted to get into all the ins and outs of the different types of grains and how to use them. But first, just as a Wyoming, I, I'm intrigued at the idea of these being grown here in our state, because, um, you know, we're not known for being a state that can grow a lot of things, especially different sorts of exotic things. And so is, is Wyoming, I mean, does it, do they grow well in Wyoming? Do they seem to like Wyoming? Can I give, I'd love to know a little bit more about that. Well, Sarah's the farmer, so she should talk about that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they do. Um, what's really impressive about these older land race varieties is they adapt. They're very cold hardy. Um, uh, one year, a red fife, it got down in the teens and it didn't have a problem with it. It bounced right back. So these, these grains are very cold hardy. Uh, they don't like hail so much this year. We got pretty much hailed out with a lot yeah. of our stuff. Um, but they're really impressive and Caitlin can talk a lot more, especially the aha moment I had this summer, um, looking at the root structure, like it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and what's really great. And a lot of people will stop and look at our fields because the wheat, um, typical wheat fields, if you go through Kansas, um, North Dakota, South Dakota, and you see wheat fields. They're these, uh, it's mostly red spring. There's hard white as well. So, um, but those wheats only get like 24 inches tall. They, they've bred it so the stalks on the straw is really short. These heritage varieties easily get four or five feet tall. The einkorn can get even taller. Whoa. Okay. So it's really neat to be able to see. And a lot of like the older folks drive by and they're like, that's the way we used to be when I was growing up. Yeah. So it's really cool to see um, just the, the diversity between, because I had um, 
couple of the heritage varieties alongside a red spring. And just to see the differences between the two, it, it's really neat. If, you, if you're into that kind of stuff, and I'm, I'm finding yes. a lot of more people are, are really wanting to know about their food. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. Sarah brings up a really good point about these old varieties, what we call our heritage or our ancient varieties with our modern or high yielding varieties. And for folks who are familiar with the concept of the Green Revolution, which was around the 1950s and the um, a really a big change in crop breeding, um, what, what happened was a lot of wheat varieties were bred specifically for very high yields with high inputs. And so they shortened the stocks, the plant breeders shortened the stocks um, to be able to hold a heavier seed head and with less straw. And then they also developed varieties that really needed a lot of fertilizer uh, input to thrive and to pr mm. produce a lot of yield and also uniformity. They wanted them very uniform, very high yielding varieties with under high input growing system. And when you look at going back to these heritage varieties like Sarah's raising, one thing that's different is um, the root mass, like or the root um, size, like she mentioned, they're deeper, um, bigger roots. Um, they're able to scavenge more nutrients from the soil. They seem to be more adaptable and you have actually more genetic diversity within each variety. And so you may look across a field and see a little bit of fluctuation in height, maybe a little bit of difference in when things mature, just, the, just a little bit more variation than in the modern, what we call high yielding varieties. Um, and so that's, I think, a really interesting thing to see. And we have, we talk a lot about heirloom tomatoes and heritage livestock varieties, but we think, we forget that wheat is also the same way. It's not just wheat is wheat is wheat, right? You can pick different varieties of different flavors and different uses for the different types of wheat. And then again, getting back to these different, um, this more heritage genetics too. So it's, it's pretty interesting. It was really fun at Sarah's place this summer, digging up some of those different varieties and looking at their roots all together and seeing why we're finding that some of these ancient and heritage varieties are more water efficient, for example, or more nutrient use efficient because of their, the roots that they have. Is that better for the soil too? It's certainly, yeah, certainly if you're thinking about carbon cycling in the soil, yeah. right? So the more yep. biomass there is, the more root cycling through the soil, adding carbon to the soil. And then in Sarah's case, as she can tell you, they're doing a lot of cover crops and rotational grazing and other soil building practices as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so you mentioned that the modern varieties are higher yield, but also higher input. So I'm assuming that these more heritage varieties are slightly lower yield, but also does they require lower inputs? Like does it have, like maybe less fertilizer, less water? Is that a safe assumption? Uh, yeah, for the most part, we don't use um, fertilizers or any sort of input. We um, This year we had kind of a funky spring. So we had a really cold spring. And so we planted really late this year, but we, did, we do companion planting. This year I chose, um, a crimson clover, which is not frost tolerance at all. So we didn't plant plant till late May, but um, we we tend to do companion planting. Um, we've done in the past where we've grown peas because peas are a really good nitrogen fixer and wheat is a very heavy nitrogen fix, uh, feeder. Mm -hmm. So we try to plant something um, that help, you know, feed each other, um, but definitely, they they do yield a lot less and that's why they tend to be a lot more expensive um typical um hard red spring wheat a good um high yield is about 160 bushel an acre um some of our heritage varieties like white sonora red fife things like that they average between 50 and 80 bushel oh, um wow. the einkorn the the einkorn is is very low yielding. That's why it's very expensive because 
I think we got a thousand pounds an acre, not even bushel. Like it's, mm-hmm. and you also have to dehole it. So you have these really heavy holes. You have to do a couple other extra processes to get that seed out of the hole. And so by the time you're done, it, it's about 800 pounds an acre that we got. Wow. Wow. So I'm assuming that's why it fell out of favor just because it's more labor intensive. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There are some practicalities of these modern grains. There's a good reason why we grow so many and we can feed a lot of people um, relatively inexpensively on what with the modern, with the modern genetics on these grains, but um, the quality, I think you, you can't compete with the quality of the older heritage and ancient grains, in my opinion. Right. And you also have the factor, which, um, well, I was going to get into it later, but we could get into it now a lot of people can't eat the modern varieties anymore because I'm assuming it's because we've eaten so much. Our bodies are just, we're maxed out. We're sensitized to it. So this could be the path of the future, even if it's lower yields. Yeah, it's been very interesting. You know, I'm a soil scientist by training. And so this has all been new to me in the last few years as I've been learning about this. Um, And I've been learning, I've never considered myself really a baker either, but I've been really enjoying learning to bake and cook more with these grains because I like the flavor. I like um, how they you feel when you eat them. And I just like having them be having local product like that. And as I've been trying to learn more about this gluten, like the story on gluten and why people are sensitive and what, what you know, there's a lot of research out there um, that's pretty interesting. And the, the one thing that I was able to find that, that really struck me um, beyond, of course, your celiac and your various other, you know, more clinical sensitivities or allergies, the, the gluten itself seems to have changed, right? The strength of the gluten through, and this is what we call traditional crop breeding techniques, which is you take, just like with livestock, you take two different, um, plants and you cross the you know pollen and then you get another seed and then you grow that seed out and that's what's considered a traditional or traditional plant breeding technique so we're not talking about genetic modification um and so um the gluten seems to have changed so if you look at the gluten in which is really made of two proteins and if you look at the ratio of those two proteins in the gluten that's found in einkorn for example and emmer and spelt through the modern wheat through the heritage and then the modern wheats that ratio seems to have shifted um there's no evidence or proof that that's what's causing the difference. But that's one thing that really struck me is that um, if you look at the the um, the modern wheat, again, being bred to have to make our modern really fluffy, high um, yield, you know, fluffy loaves, right? So you need that sort of strength of gluten in the dough to hold that air and all those things. So looking, comparing the gluten um, ratios and the gluten protein in what our modern wheats are to get those really light fluffy loaves versus these older or heritage varieties, it's just maybe a weaker gluten. So there's probably some digestibility in there. There's also some mineral differences. There's been a lot of research showing some different uh, mineral ratios, maybe these older varieties picking up more minerals out of the soil. Um, They're not lower in gluten necessarily, and they're not certainly not lower in protein, but the gluten seems to be different and they do seem to be more digestible for a lot of people. So, and again, a person has to try that for themselves and experiment and see what feels good to them and what tastes good to them. Um, But I would encourage folks who maybe have some sensitivity to modern wheat um, to try some of these heritage varieties. And a lot of people will say they go to Europe and they can eat the wheat there, but they can't eat bread there and they can't eat it here. And and it may be all related to that, you know. We yeah. we did a, a class here not too long ago, and we had a young uh, a gentleman who was from Mexico originally in our one of our baking classes, and we were using Sarah's white Sonora flour, and he had grown up in Mexico, and he was talking about how things just didn't taste as good here. And when he when we used that white Sonora wheat flour, he said it was the coolest thing. He goes, "Oh my gosh, it tastes like home. It tastes like what I grew up on, right?" Which it was. So that was a really neat thing. 
Yeah, I've I've heard so many people say that they can do the einkorn or they can do the spelt, but they can't do the modern varieties. Mm-hmm. Have you, but would that be ne- not necessarily the case for someone with like actual celiac disease, right? Because celiac right. gluten is gluten for right. that situation. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you have one of the more, I think I feel like just the overall sensitivities are more common. Yeah. That's yes. where you might be able to have some. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay. And the other thing, and you maybe you covered some of this in your blog and various conversations you've had, but sourdough and a long ferment process is a huge part of digestibility in grains yes. as well, right? So yes. and that's a whole other story, but there's another piece to that. So a sourdough heritage wheat bread is going to be very different on your system, potentially, than a modern yeasted, um, you know, modern wheat, more industrial or commercial type bread. It's really two different, almost two different categories when you think about it. What our ancestors ate for, you know, forever, thousands of years versus now what we have. No wonder we're yeah. we're reacting to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hey friends, I'm interrupting this episode for just a second to give you a very exciting announcement. The 2023 Old Fashioned On Purpose Planner is officially here and it is shipping out as we speak. So people ask me all the time how I keep all the moving pieces of our life going forward. And honestly, my biggest trick is I plan it all out. I write everything down and I live and die by my planner. And for many years, I couldn't find a planner or a calendar that really fit our unique old fashioned lifestyle. So I made one myself. This is our third year printing these. And I think this version is my favorite one yet. We updated the look. So it looks like an old fashioned ledger. And it has all the parts you need to keep your homestead running, whether your homestead is big and out in the middle of the country or it's just in your backyard. We have trackers for your kitchen, your garden, and your farm animals. We have charts and inventories for pantries and seeds and garden planting and kitchen projects and menu planning, uh, in addition to weekly spreads, monthly spreads, and project planners. So... It's way too much to tell you about in the middle of a podcast episode. So head on over to prairieplanner.com for all the details and a sneak peek of the inside. Plus, we have sold out every single year with these. So do not wait to grab your own. Uh, You can place your order over at prairieplanner.com. So happy planning, my friends. And now back to our episode. Uh, Do you guys have any evidence that uh, I'm thinking primarily Wyoming settlers or homesteaders, but it could be more regionally. Did any of those folks grow these ancient varieties or is this more of a modern thing? A a modern thing. (laughs) There is, there is evidence, evidence meaning photos and old newspaper clippings in Warland, Wyoming of the, what what was it called? It was called the Emmer products breakfast cereal newspaper clipping here from 1915 in the Warland grit newspaper. And there, that was they were convinced there were some investors and some um, plant, you know, crop researchers and farmers here that were convinced Emmer was the breakfast food of the future, and okay. so they were making. Um, I have a little clipping that says first on the market Emmer breakfast food, fifteen cents a package, um, and so that only lasted a couple of years. I don't know what, what happened there, but there is some history for sure in Warland of growing um, some of these older grains. So that's mm-hmm. kind of fun. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So, and, and I guess pre-1950s, you know, the Green Revolution was when those modern varieties, right, Sarah, started switching over high-yielding modern varieties. And so previous to that, then everyone was growing, it wasn't called heritage at the time. That's just what they yeah. grew, right? Just as it is what it is. Yeah. And that's why you have the old timers who are recognizing the tall stocks. It wasn't necessarily einkorn, but they were, that was just what everyone was growing was those other varieties. Okay. Um, totally a little bit of a random question. 
you mentioned land race. Can you define that for us? And I'm asking because um, I had a chicken expert, Harvey Essery, on, and he was talking about Icelandic chickens, which are a land race of chicken. So I'm thinking, here's a land race of wheat. So what is the difference between a land race and a breed or a regular variety? Sarah, do you have uh, an answer so, that? Yeah, uh, so land race is, um, because all, all varieties of wheat began in the Fertile Crescent, and as people started expanding, they took seed with them. And every time they planted that seed, that seed adapted to that new um, location, new environment. Um, there's a lot of these, depending on which environment they're in, some of them will be a lower protein or a higher protein. Some of them will switch from, I don't know how, but um, will become either a soft wheat or a hard wheat depending on where it's grown. So it, a land race is just basically something that adapts quickly, mm. um, is more efficient. Cause if you take some of these like hard red springs and you try to grow it, say down South, you're going to get terrible yields. You're not going to have a consistent product, but with these, yeah, there's a little variance in them, but overall they're a very, um, uniform, very hardy um, plant. So what I've gotten from the land race is that wherever you take it, it adapts to that new environment and it, it will do whatever it has to to survive. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking more and more lately about um, just growing, you know, when we first moved our homestead here, we're in South, we're a little different region of Wyoming than you two, but I was always trying to go to the garden store and buy what they were growing in Fort Collins. And I, after killing, you know, thousands of dollars worth of plants. I'm like, Jill, stop, just buy the thing that wants to grow here. And it sounds like this is kind of along that, it, you know, it can adapt, it can handle it, it can hang. So I, I like that concept. And then as a farmer over time, you are, you are selecting, you know, some of those, you're doing your own crop selection on a land race too, over time, whether that's a tomato or a wheat or whatever, the one, the plants that are thriving there, you're collecting the seeds from those plants and you're continuing to help that plant adapt and thrive in its own environment. Similar you might do with chickens, for example, yeah. you're going to keep the eggs from the chickens that are the ones that thrive there, you know, in your region. So I think that's a really important, it's a really good point for gardeners too, like you said, is figure out what thrives in your region and, and really go with that and, and don't try and grow something that should be growing somewhere else. Yes. Yeah. Got to respect the, the area yeah. and the climate. Yeah. And then having some diversity still in the crop, like these heritage and ancient varieties, there's a lot more diversity yet in the, in the crop itself, which allows it to adapt. There gives some genetics to draw on for adaptation. Yes. Yes. You mentioned, you mentioned biodiversity earlier too. Can you, can one of you give for someone who's not familiar with that or why it matters, not only just in our wheat, but in our, just all our agricultural products as a whole, why is biodiversity so important? Boy, that's a good that's question. Like a whole, that's like a sermon probably, huh? <laughs> yes, I know, I know. I mean, I think the adaptability to stressors on the system, I'll give you my take. And then Sarah, I'm sure as a farmer has a different take, but um, that, you know, being a, so if you look at the definition of health, I talk about soil health a lot and the adapt, definition of health. And one of the definitions of health is the ability to adapt and self-manage in the face of challenges, whether you're looking at your health, 
your land health, your livestock health, right? And so if you think about diversity and the ability within a system to be adaptable and to be able, especially when there's when there's stress or drought or extreme cold or disease on the system or whatever, the more genetic diversity and the more diversity within a crop, genetic diversity or diversity within the system, um, if you think about a forested ecosystem or even in the soil, the diversity of microbes, then the more ability that system is gonna be able to adapt to pressures and respond in a positive way to pressures. Um, so that's one of the ways I think about biodiversity is it's like you have the more tools in your tool bag or a more of an ability to adapt under pressure. One way to think about it. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah, and also you look at what you're, what's available in the grocery store. What, I mean, what color are carrots? What color are tomatoes? Um, different things like that. Like someone just decided, hey, nope, tomatoes, they're red carrots they're yeah. orange and now people are looking and they're like wow carrots are not orange they're not red um I think it's really important to um keep different species alive like I found out was, was last year or something that there's 90 different types of kiwi alone and how many do you how many do you see in the grocery store one yeah. or two one. Yeah. green or a golden um but I think um, part of our food um problems that we have is also They've, they found one thing and they continue to just grow that one thing. And now we have a problem with monoculture. Uh, one, one problem I know is with bananas. They just started cloning one type of banana and now it's under pressure from uh, different pests. And there's you know possibility that our bananas are gonna go extinct because it's just one type of banana. Um, but I think it's really important, and that's where Caitlin and I also get into about farming practices. And I don't know if you want to get into that as well. I would love to really yes. start focused on yes. um, the, you know, the buzzword regenerative ag. But it's just basically, um, like I say, it's it's mimicking uh, nature. It's it's nothing special. You're just working with Mother Nature instead of working against her. The first thing, and Caitlin will say as well is stop tilling like that's our number one thing and it drives me crazy i'm getting a lot more people to understand of you know where is most of our our health in our body it's in our our gut all of our health comes from the soil well if you don't have healthy soil you don't have all those microbes you're not going to be healthy yourself so we've really been pushing the, you know, cover crops, rotational grazing with livestock, stop tilling, using companion planting, using lots of multi-species uh, cover crops, and just, you know, work with Mother Nature. Stop working against her because she wants to help you and she'll help you. And it makes life so much easier once you get going. Absolutely. Yeah. How, do, how does the no-till work with planting wheat? Oh, it's super easy. Um, you just adjust um, your seeding rate. You block off, okay. you know, whatever you need to. But it, it's easy. We've done corn, um, the wheat, barley. Uh, we, was it two years ago, did a multi-species mix in our hay. We are starting okay. to put, just to build. So it's not just straight off off up. We've been doing a, a scorpion sudan grass. We did teff. Uh, peas, when we put this all together. So they're all different types of seeds and it's done really well. That's amazing. 
That's awesome. I've been, I'm in the middle of reading a book about the Dust Bowl and it's like, it just makes me sick. I, I, I can listen to it in like in little chunks because just like the thought of the dirt, just I'm like, it's your dirt's floating away. Your soil, not your dirt, your soil, your soil's leaving you. What are you thinking? Oh, yeah. And then the government's like, till more, till more. Oh, <laughs> it is such a dark piece of our history oh. in this country, but we can learn from it. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that's, that's amazing. Honestly, I mean, I don't really till here on my homestead, but I don't know a lot about more large scale agriculture till versus no till. So that's so cool. They were able to do this, the wheat and all that without tilling. I, had, I didn't really realize that was mm-hmm. possible. This was my, my ignorance, but that's incredible. Yeah. 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 Um, awesome. So I, can you t- give us a rundown, Sarah, real quick of the varieties that you grow? Because I know I got a box from Caitlin, this amazing goodie box with all these different types. And I had never heard of red fife. And what was the other one? I hadn't heard. I hadn't heard of the. Was it? Is it white Sonora? Did you say? Yes. I hadn't heard of that one. So, can you give us a rundown of what you're growing and kind of maybe? I know my audience is familiar with einkorn. If those are close to einkorn, or if they're not close to einkorn, just kind of the categories there. Um, einkorn. So, is the original wheat has not been um, really improved in in 10,000 years. That was the first wheat that humans really started um, using for agriculture. And then, like I said, the the land race, every time a certain seed is taken to a different area, it adapts. It becomes a new, basically, species, well, a new variety of wheat. So um, the red fife was, I can't remember the actual name for it, but it was grown in, I think it was Ukraine. And eventually was picked up and taken to uh, Glasgow, where a gentleman scooped it out of a rail car and took it to Canada. And they started growing it in Canada. And that was um, a variety that did really well. It actually helped them homestead Western Canada more. They named it after the farmer that was growing it, David Fife. Okay. Just that's how a lot of the names were. Yep. <laughs> a color or a place it was grown. Uh, the white Sonora was grown in Europe and was brought over in, I believe it was the mid 1500s when Coronado started exploring Southern um, US, Northern Mexico and the missionaries brought that with them and started planting it in the Sonoran Valley. And that was actually grown commercially till 1980. And then they started hybridizing it to get larger yields. Um, so we do the red fife and white sonora. I really enjoy those. They're very easy to work with. They have great flavor profiles. They have different characteristics. The um, red fife is a hard wheat. The sonora is um, technically called a soft wheat, but here it's been adapting and we've been getting higher proteins and it's, it, I think it's kind of a semi hard wheat now. It's not, it, it's got a lot of structure to it. Um, this year we also grew a Bordeaux, a French wheat. It has great flavor. Um, I've got a whole bunch of trials for next year. I'm working with a general, a chef from California and he, um, him and another guy had contacted small farmers throughout the world. And I'm getting some, um, very isolated different types of grains that have been only grown in these small villages. So I'm excited to hopefully start growing larger amounts of those. Um, we had rye grown this year. It's not 
white heritage variety. We have to be kind of pick, picky on the rye varieties because they typically have a longer bloom and it's more susceptible to ergot, which ergot is a fungus that comes from grass. And so that can be a problem. So I went with a, a kind of modern one. It was developed in Canada in the early 70s. It's called gazelle rye and it has a shorter bloom time. So then it's not as susceptible to the ergot because oh, I had a lot of folks that have been pushing me for years not wanting to grow rye up here because we do grow a lot of really great malt barley here and you don't want that into your malt barley. Oh, okay, sure. Awesome. The, the, the rye that Sarah has, you're talking about the gazelle rye maybe, Sarah, but it is so good. Yeah. I highly recommend you tr try it if you get a chance. It's very, very good. I love making a good rye biscuit out of that one. Mm. It's almost yeah. sweet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The flavor on these is so different. I, I feel like, I mean, we could say that about so many, you know, real grass finished or grass fed beef or the raw milk, but like the flavor is so different. It's nutty. It's rich. Mm -hmm. I, I always notice the color of the doughs are different and brighter. It's just, it's just a whole different animal. You know, a really fun way that I've had fun trying the different ones is a, something like a pancake because you just can taste the grain, nothing yeah. else really to get in the way, but it's very simple. Um, you know, Sarah mentioned that einkorn was the first domesticated grain. Um, and then that's what we call um, a diploid, which means it really only has two sets of chromosomes. And then at some point, historically, the einkorn was crossed again with another wild grass, probably that became emmer, picked up another set of chromosomes, gave it a little more genetic diversity, a little bit more of ability to adapt into different conditions, yields a little bit more. Um, and then from there, again, maybe some outcrossing either on purpose or by accident became spelt, or then we, then we developed spelt from there. Um, and then spelt is actually very close to our modern wheat. So that's the sort of the progression of what we call the ancient grains. Okay. Einkorn first, and then emmer, and then spelt. And then it was wheat. And then from those wheat, then there was the sort of the heritage wheat we talked about pre-green revolution, and then the modern wheat. So that's, that kind of gives a person a little that's bit helpful. of a a timeline to understand what we're talking about there. And the emmer, um, and Sarah, you could talk more about this, but it's very close to durum wheat, which is a very hard wheat that is used for pasta typically, right? Yes, yes. Um, and I, it's my favorite. I'm a big fan of the emmer. I, I, you'll never have a better pancake, in my opinion, than a whole mm -hmm. grain emmer. And I, all of them, I've just, I really don't use very much sifted flour or all-purpose flour anymore since I've had been enjoying playing with these. And Or you can mix them a little bit. Um, but the emmer, I think, has a really good nutty flavor, makes an outstanding pancake. And the spelt, even if a person wants to try baking with what might be, instead of a whole wheat, more whole wheat, um, you, the spelt can kind of be used interchangeably and seems to have a sweeter flavor. Um, at least that's been my experience, limited experience with it. But again, I'd really encourage folks to experiment and just have fun with it. And your pancakes or quick breads are a good place to start, I think. Sarah has a great biscuit recipe, uh, sourdough biscuit, I mean, um, white sonora biscuit recipe. I think that might be the, is that the one you sent me, Caitlin? You sent off the yeah. out. Okay. Yeah. I haven't yeah. tried it yet, but I have it. I have it on my fridge. Yeah. <laughs> Come and, and I think we made that one too, with, um, a whole grain white sonora flour. And that white sonora is a really light colored flour grain anyway. Right. And then you mill it whole grain, hundred percent whole grain. And it's just a really light whole grain flour, which is kind of fun too. Which one of these that you mentioned, if someone is, you know, mostly accustomed to this red spring wheat, they're trying to get into these because there's that learning curve. Which one's the closest to what they're used to using for like a yeast bread where they need that gluten development? 
Um, so you would have to have more of a hard wheat. Um, our Bordeaux would be the closest thing because it's okay. it's a higher protein um, hard wheat. Uh, the Sonora, like I said, is more of a softer wheat. And so I use that based, it's more delicate. So cakes, ba um, biscuits, uh, pastries, different things like that. I make quick breads with it as well because it is a higher protein. But um, yeah, I just, in getting people to understand the different classes of wheat, because we do have just the hard red spring or the hard white, they sift everything out of it. So you're just eating the endosperm, just the sugar yes. of the, the grain and getting people <clears throat> to understand that different classes of wheat, you have your soft wheats, you have your hard wheats, and then durum is the hardest class. And just just re-educating people and getting them to understand that there's different purposes for different types of wheat. And so I always um, ask them what they want to make and suggest um, what they'd have the most success with on with that. So it it's kind of hard. Um, spelt is a good one too, because it's typically a little higher protein as well, and it's hard as well. So that that's where you're going to get your breads. Everyone, for some reason, wants to jump into straight to sourdough. Yeah. And like I try to tell them, like, <laughs> they it's, a, do. It's, a, it's a science and art. Yes. If you've never you used wild yeast before, you need to practice before you just jump into that. And especially with whole grain, um, yes. teaching people about whole grain, because the whole grain you get in the supermarket is not a true whole grain. Because Ooh. once it's milled, it starts oxidizing and the germ is where the fat is. If that is, they, they sift that out and put some of the bran back in and they call that whole grain, but you're oh. not getting the nutrition. Yeah. Of the germ. Otherwise it would go rancid. You have to keep it like frozen. Okay. If you do have a true whole grain okay. and getting people to understand that you're going to have a brick unless you actually treat that right. You have to do what's called a, a flour soak. And so when you're making your bread, you put it in with the liquid and you let that bran rehydrate. Yeah. Otherwise that bran is going to cut your gluten strands and you're going to be left with the big hard brick. Yes. I didn't know the cutting mechanism until like a year ago. Cause I was, I knew that it didn't work because I've made so many bricks. Mm -hmm. I'm like, why does the whole wheat not like the sourdough or the, I'm like, what is going on? And finally I had a gal on and she's like, it's cutting it like little scissors. I'm like, yeah. Oh, who figured that out? That's <laughs> <what I'm laughs> <about>. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And then Mark Bittman's book. I don't know if you guys have his bread book. It came out a year or two ago. It, he has that soak. And I, that was the first time I made like a hundred percent whole wheat with sourdough mm -hmm. and it was like it rose and it was like the best day ever. Magic. <laughs> yes. So yes, it's different though. And people come to me all the time. They're basically like, I've been eating wonder bread for the last 80 years, but I'm going to start making hundred percent sourdough with whole wheat next week. And I'm like, no. Good, good like baby steps, <laughs> baby steps. So, yes. Yeah. It's been so. fun to just give myself permission to experiment. And I would encourage your listeners to do that too, is just try, try it, you know, and, yes. and starting with something that's not your, if you're not looking for a, a really light, fluffy loaf, things like a quick bread or a pancake or a flatbread or something, you know, biscuits, something yeah. that is a little more forgiving and then just experiment and mix random quantities of different flowers together. Sometimes I'll <laughs> have a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I got some rye and I've got some spelt and I end up with some white sonora and you mix them all together and it's okay. And so I'd encourage folks to um, let themselves experiment a little bit um, and have fun with it and really notice the difference in the flavor and how you feel when you eat it. Yeah. Do you have some rules of thumb in your baking? If you're converting a tradition, like 
what what's not word not traditional conventional flour recipe over to one of these that has a different gluten uh, makeup. What are your rules of thumb as far as hydration or mixing or kneading or or all that? Uh, I tell people that they have to listen to it. It'll tell them um, it's a being so it it'll act a little different. But for the most part, if you it's not just like an automatic transmission. You can't just start it and go. Yeah. Like it, you actually have to feel it. Um, it'll tell you if it's too dry. It'll tell you if it's too wet. So just getting people to understand that they actually have to kind of pay attention, just not dump stuff in and go. Because they're, they've taken everything out in, um, you know, commodity flour. And so you're not just dealing with the sugar, you're dealing with because um, with the stone milling, it not everything's taken out of it. So you'll still see flex of little bits of the bran, um, the germ as well. But these older varieties, like it's just, it, you have to use the appropriate wheat for whatever recipe you're using. That's the first um, yeah. thing I tell people is actually just kind of do a little reading, learn about it. There's a lot of information about a lot of these grains. Um, the Sonora and the Red Fife themselves, uh, if they look, they're in the slow food arc. So slow food, um, USA and slow food, uh, the global, they are preserving all these different grains. They're putting it in what they call an arc. And so they have oh, cool. a lot of information about it, a lot of history and suggestions on it. But there's, there's, these are becoming a little more mainstream. So there's a lot of recipes if people aren't quite confident. But I just tell people to just, you know, experiment because there's some stuff that people do. Like, I love Caitlin's picture. She said, she's like, hey, I had all this stuff and she makes something. I'm like, it's a good idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's just, just try, just experiment. You, you're going to have failures. I've had a lot of failures over the yes. years, but I've also had a lot of really great success. And until you do simple things like pancakes or biscuits, like I can't tell you how many people don't even know how to make a simple drop biscuit. Yeah. It's it you have to learn. You can't start with the hard stuff right away. You have to learn, you have to re-educate and you have to be very patient. Yes. Do you Sarah, did you find that you generally end up at, like with these ancient grains, so your immer and einkorn and stuff versus your wheat, that you end up adding a little bit more liquid or that it takes time, like it takes a little more time for the liquid to absorb than it does in your, in your maybe more industrial flowers. So you have to give yourself a, like, give it time. Don't give up on it yet. Watch it a little longer. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, definitely. And especially with einkorn, I have a lot of people that immediately want to jump into einkorn. I'm like, that's, that's very difficult because high, einkorn requires a very high hydration. Yeah. Your dough looks like a bowl of soup when you put it in to bake it. it it's pretty crazy. And a lot of people get yeah. really discouraged about that. So, you know, it's about trial and error. There's a lot of great resources online anymore about a lot of these grains because a lot of people have found out about them. So a lot more people that have a lot more time have developed a lot more recipes, but definitely they, and it also depends on your environment. Like here in Wyoming, up here we're high mountain desert. So it obviously takes a lot more um, liquid because we are so dry. Yeah. Um, but it, it depends on your environment. I, I tell people it's not just a one size fits all it. There's so many different variants that you have. So you just have to be able to feel it. Just 
give yourself some time, just experiment, do something simple. And I also tell people do a side-by-side comparison. So make something with like gold metal or whatever you have on hand and then make it with the other varieties and, you know, taste it, feel it, um, you know, just, just learn to, to listen to what the grains are telling you. We're, I think we've gotten so off track. Well, I know we have in our culture and <laughs> on so many, in so many ways around that idea in the world of flour. I mean, all purpose flour has just kind of spoiled us that, you know, flour should be all purpose all the time for all the things. And that's not really accurate in the historical realm. Um, but I know just with all the other pieces of homesteading or this way of thinking, when you do take the time and make all the mistakes and figure out the art piece of it that go and, and the science, and you're able to get that feel that feels, it gets really exciting because it feels good. Like that's a whole really different fun. level of expertise. I don't know. It's just like, I love that feeling. It, it's work. It takes, cause you can't learn it necessarily from a cookbook. You have to just no. do it, but man, it's fun. Yeah. And find the ones that are easy. Like I make pancakes in a giant batch and I freeze them. And then I have some, I have a whole grain pancakes in the freezer and I pull out three or four in the morning and I can make a quick breakfast. Like find the things for you that that make it enjoyable and that are fun. Do you eat a lot of biscuits? Do you eat a lot of pancakes? Do you really like to want to learn how to make a tortilla? Or like, what is the thing that just adds the most value to your own life and the, own, and the way you eat, you know? And we do a lot of our own meat processing, both from hunting and from, and with domestic animals. And like similar to me in that you, you process the animal the way you're going to cook it. So if you like to eat a lot of burgers, if you like to eat a lot of roasts, if you like, however it is, you're going to eat that and however you're going to share it with your family, you know, set it up in that way so that it works for you. It may be different than what your neighbor might do or, you know, yes. somebody else. So, yeah. Yeah. Some of the beauties of the homemade home produced yeah. food. Yeah. 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 Um, with these flowers, I think an einkorn or spelt or the ones I've worked with the most that are, have a different gluten is should as a rule, should you generally need a little less or not need as much, or does it just, like you said, just, just depend. Um, I found that they take a little more kneading. They okay. need a little more work to get the gluten activated. Um, you know, sometimes it may be just five more minutes in your mixer or, you know, hand kneading it, but it goes back to the, you just, you got to feel it, you know, do, do the test, like the window pane test mm-hmm. to see if that gluten has, you know, been fully activated, but it, it, it does take a little more. honestly it just depends on the recipe but it does it sometimes it takes a little more just because um a lot of these grains like I said are stone milled and so they do act differently than the steel burr mill um you're gonna have a lot more character and so it it kind of has a mind of its own and you do need to you know watch it and be mindful of that so what is the I don't really understand the difference between the stone milled and the steel burr I know you do the stone mill and how, what, what does that finished flour look like? Or what could someone expect from one method to the other? So the stone milling is uh, basically the steel burr mills came in with the green revolution. They, that's when they started baking the commercial loaves of bread. So it was milled and basically baked in two hours. So you had from beginning to end in two hours. And so with that steel burn mill, that flour is getting heated up. They're stripping all the nutrition out of it. Um, and then, of course, if you read on the bag, um, they re-enrich it because the government requires that the flour has to have some nutrients in it. So 
uh, the stone milled, it just takes a lot longer. Um, but what you're left with is a, a much richer smelling, tasting flour. You can feel the oils still in the stone milling with the steel bird. There's there's no oils left in it. Like I said, they strip everything out of it. Um, but it, you'll you'll see still even if in our sifted flours, you'll still see little specks of the bran, little bits of the germ. Um, I have a lot of um, restaurants and bakeries that use our flour and the biggest the compliments I get about how easy it is to work like even making like a mm -hmm. pie crust because sometimes if you're making a pie crust out of you know just white flour you really have to work to get that to you know stretch out with this have no problems it's so easy to make pie crust it's so easy to make things um it's there's so many variants. That's the thing is it, it all depends on people's skill set yeah. on it. Um, but I mean, for the most part, you're going to actually find it a lot easier to work with and people get freaked out because it is, you know, it'll rise a little quicker or it'll be a little slower. Um, so like I said, it just, it just depends on what you're making what your level is on baking, but you definitely see a difference in them. That's why I always suggest people do a side-by-side -side comparison with the flour they've been using and try with these other varieties. And then that way you can actually see the difference yourself. Because if you're just doing it with yeah. like a heritage variety, it's really hard to see the difference than you would with the commodity flour. Sure. So it seems like the theme of the episode is listen to the flour. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah go by feel yeah listen to the flower jill um, i think looking yeah. at your blog i thought you had a uh, talk a little bit about owning a flour mill having your own home scale flour mill yes yes i was gonna i was gonna ask that i have a nutramill um it's called, i think it's a harvest mill model and i was trying to remember i think it said it had i can't remember what mechanism it had in it but yeah, well, yeah I would I would really encourage folks to to um, consider investing in a tabletop mill. You can buy grains from Sarah or from a farmer in your area, whole grains. They store really well. You can still have three or four or five varieties of grain, mill it when you're ready for it. Um, and then you don't have the rancid issue that she was talking about also, mm -hmm. right, by trying to store it. Um, yeah. And I have a couple different kinds here that we've used for this project. One's called a mock mill. We have one, a wonder mill. There's lots of different ones out there for a kitchen scale. But again, I would encourage folks to to look into that for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's been a great investment. Also, just because you can't, it's harder to buy bulk flour, but it's easier to buy bulk whole grains, and then you just use them as you need them. And it, when uh, in 2020, when there was flour shortages, that came very much in handy. It was very nice to have those whole grains yeah. in the basement. <laughs> yeah, the yeah, yeah, for sure. Another resource I found that was re that's really good that's been useful to me as an amateur baker is a website called Breadtopia. Mm, okay. uh, and maybe you've seen that one, but they are great because they have a lot of this kind of information, a little more of the science of it, but also recipes and videos. And for someone like me, who's really an amateur baker, but has having fun learning, it's a great resource. Awesome. We'll put that in the show notes too. Um, fabulous. Well, we're running up on time. Anything that either of you wanted to add that we didn't cover or any other thoughts? Don't be scared. Just just jump in and do it. Um, you can tell people you don't know what you're missing until you you try it. And I'm glad that there's becoming more of a movement for 
complete that people aren't, you know, they're learning that they don't have to be scared of it, that they might not actually be, you know, be sick anymore. Like my neighbor, she has not been able to eat wheat at all for 25 years. It would make her deathly ill. And she's coming by the shop a couple times a week to pick up flour because she can bake again and she can eat it with no problems. Yeah. So don't be scared. Um, And also, you know, less is more, the less processing, Um, be more mindful on how things are farmed. Um, There's, you know, people are really focused on organic, but like I still shy away from the word organic because you're still tilling, you're still, you know, still um, modern farming practices that uh, as we're finding out are not good for us. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'd much rather buy from a small producer that I know their story and I know their practices versus a big, big label organic from the grocery store. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we were really, you know, getting more and more keen on buying um, meat locally and vegetables locally. And so then the next step is to be able to find your local grain farmer or even regional Sarah ships also from mm-hmm. Wyoming, anywhere you want to yes. go. Um, and there were ask that. Okay. Depends on where you're listening in from, but um, there are many small, there, there's a growing number of small grain farmers around um, that a yep. person can, can track down in their own neighborhood. Yes, I love that. And it's kind of the next step. We've got, you know, more meat awareness, more vegetable awareness, dairy, and now here we are. Here we are on to the grains. Um, so Sarah, so someone can purchase from you if they don't have their own local grain farmer. They can go to you and you can ship. What is your website for people to go check out what you have? Um, it's wyomingheritagegrains.com. Okay. Uh, if you guys have any questions, I'll be glad to answer them. I ship all over. I've shipped, I think, to almost every state. Um, so, but like I said, I, I always recommend people look and see if they have a local um, mill in their state. There's a lot of us. We're all pretty good friends. Um, I It's not a competition. We just want to provide the best flour that we can for everybody. Yeah. Awesome. And Caitlin, do you, I didn't ask you, do you have a website or anything where people can follow you online or are you more behind the scenes? No, I'm more behind the scenes. And you know, if if folks are interested um, in some of the spelt and the emmer and whatnot that we've grown through this research project, Sarah's actually the best avenue for that as well. She can, she can um, help a person. She gets grain through the university of Wyoming and then also grows mostly her own. So we've been working together on that. So the best thing to do is to work with her on getting your grains. Okay. Fabulous. Well, ladies, this was so fun. I feel so much more educated and excited to go give some of these a try um, that maybe I haven't tried before. So thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing what kind of recipes you come up with. (laughs) Me too. You never know with me. I have to make a lot of mistakes first, so it might be a little while, but once I get it all figured out, I'll post it. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, thank you so much. Yes. Thank you guys. Thanks, Happy baking, everyone.